This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. And this is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? Uh, and I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Well, as the race for the presidency heats up, the Democratic choice for the presidency is the one to watch at this point. What do you think, Bob? Well, certainly in terms of lawyers, I was back in, uh, I think, October that uh, Adam Liptak at the New York Times wrote that you could put together a pretty good little law firm from the various lawyer candidates. Uh, we're, we're down to two at this point, of course. Senator Barack Obama and Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton are, uh, well, arguably neck and neck in the race for Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, and their experience as lawyers is, is being looked at more closely in the media and uh, is, of course, a source of debate between the two of them. In keeping with President's Day, we're going to explore the race for the Democratic spot between these two lawyers who are vying for the top prize in this very historical competition. We'll also take a look at their actual experience as attorneys while looking back at the role that various lawyer presidents have had throughout history. So to help us do that today are our two guests. First of all, let me introduce Professor Paul Finkelman, a returning guest to our program, Uh Paul is the President William McKinley Distinguished Professor of Law and Public Policy at Albany Law School, uh, a specialist in American legal history, race, and the law. Uh, Paul is the author of more than 100 scholarly articles and more than 20 books. He's an expert in areas uh, such as the law of slavery, constitutional law, and, of course, the legal issues surrounding baseball, which is what brought him on the show previously. Uh, Paul also wrote the chapter uh, on President Abraham Lincoln for the American Bar Association book entitled America's Lawyer Presidents. So welcome to the show, Paul Finkelman. It's it's delightful to be back. Well, Bob, our next guest is Professor Robert Spitzer. He is this distinguished service professor of political science at SUNY Cortland. He has also served as a member of the New York State Commission on the Bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution and has testified before Congress on several occasions. His most recent book to be published next month by Cambridge University Press is entitled Saving the Constitution from Lawyers, How Legal Training and Law Reviews Distort Constitutional Meaning. Welcome to the show, Professor Spitzer. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, one of the things that we wanted to talk about this morning was whether or not we've got uh, real attorneys with real law experience running for president. What are your thoughts? Uh, this is Paul speaking, and those are two separate questions. That is, uh, we, whether they are real attorneys is different from whether they have real life experiences. Uh, I think uh, Senator Obama has some very interesting real life experiences. Uh, just his very sense of who he is, where he's come from, are a series of interesting real life experiences. Uh, you know, whether that makes him a real lawyer depends on what you think a real lawyer is. Uh, uh, Senator Clinton, on the other hand, was involved in a real law practice in Arkansas, and so that gives her a real law experience if you think practicing corporate law is what uh, real lawyers do. She was also an attorney for the uh, House Judiciary Committee when it was investigating President Nixon, so if you think a real lawyer is somebody who works for a government agency or works for Congress, then she's a real lawyer. Uh, both of them are lawmakers. Uh, does that make you a real lawyer if you make laws? 
All good questions and probably ones that uh, we should be exploring this morning. What, um, what do you think the problem was with the two of them, or was there a problem with the two of them attacking each other? I mean, regarding their own law experience. I mean, Obama attacked Clinton for sitting on the board of Walmart, and Clinton attacked Obama for representing an arguable slum landlord uh, in, in inner city Chicago. Did that do any good? What was the, um, is it fair to attack another lawyer's experience when you're running for the presidency? Well, if I may, uh, I think the attacks, this is Bob Spitzer, I think the attacks were uh, within bounds, but I think they were important less because they involved legal work by Obama and uh, Clinton and more because of the kind of work that it was. That is, Hillary Clinton's association with Walmart viewed as kind of an anti-union and a very large uh, corporate uh, conglomerate, one of the largest company in the world, I guess, and uh, Obama defending uh, ostensibly a slumlord in uh, the Chicago area. I think it had more to do with the kind of uh, firms they were associated with rather than the, the fact that they were lawyers per se. I wonder if we could back up a little bit and, and take a look at the, uh, the kind of this broader question of, of whether lawyers are are good candidates to be president. So what what is it uh, about a lawyer uh, that does or does not make uh, that person qualified to be president? Uh, and, and Paul, I just wonder. I mean, you've written, you, you've looked at at Abraham Lincoln as as a lawyer and as a president. And I mean, what are your thoughts about that in sort of the historical context? I think lawyers make superb presidents, and uh, there are a few reasons for that. One is because practicing law does connect you to all kinds of different people. Uh, one of the things that made Lincoln very different than almost every other white politician of his age is that while practicing law in Illinois, he had a successful black businessman as a client. And so when it came time for Lincoln to be able to move on things like emancipation and putting uh, blacks in uniform as, as fighting troops and later advocating black suffrage, which he did towards the end of his career. Uh, Lincoln had the experience of having worked closely in the odd position for a white man of being uh, the uh, client of a black man. That, that is, uh, the, I mean, the black man was his legal client, but, but he, the black man was also his financial uh, client and that he was uh, paying Lincoln. So, so Lincoln understood the qualities of African Americans uh, were not the racist notions uh, that most people had because he'd seen the other side. Law does that all the time. Law puts you in contact with real people. Now, if you're a corporate lawyer, it's less likely to be the case. If you're sitting on the board of a, of a major corporation, you don't deal with average people. You just deal with uh, the other people who are on the corporate board. I would be much more... Uh, favorable to Senator Clinton on this issue if, in fact, she had worked for a union that was trying to unionize Walmart since she's going out after the organized labor vote. Um, there is a kind of a disconnect between that and being on the board of a company that's notoriously anti-union. Well, the the, uh, the piece in the New York Times that Adam Lichtak wrote back in October was was kind of funny for for pointing out that her first Mrs. Clinton's first jury trial uh, in, involved uh, defending a, a company uh, in a case in which the rear end of a rat had been found in a can of pork and beans. Uh, so I don't know if that's uh, a prescient of anything, but uh, it's somewhat interesting. But still, most more of our presidents but, have. But, been... You know, that, well, lawyers lawyers that work for law firms often take on cases they don't believe in. Of course, uh, of course. You know, they, they have clients that they don't particularly like. 
that's because you're, you're working for a firm. The firm says, here, this is your client. You're not going to quit your job because you don't like the client. Uh, I, I actually think there's a difference between serving on a corporate board and serving your clients. Uh, many lawyers have to take clients they don't particularly like. Defense attorneys, of course, defend people that they may despise. Civil liberties attorneys uh, defend the civil liberties of people whose ideas they can't stand. Uh, but serving on a corporate board is, is a volunteer thing. Absolutely. Well, therein lies, uh, if I may, therein lies, uh, to piggyback on Paul's point, uh, the downside to the uh, attachment to the legal profession, because indeed, uh, clients that you defend who are unpopular politically or in other, man- in other ways could result in an attachment to the person seeking the presidency that may later come to haunt them. To use a different example, John Adams uh, won a great deal of fame, or real, or you might say infamy, when he defended uh, eight British soldiers who fired on Americans at the Boston Massacre in 1770, and he actually was pretty successful. He won acquittals for six of the eight, and the other two uh, were just returned to their units. Let me add also that the larger point, well, first to say, of the 42 men who have served as presidents, 25 of them have been lawyers. So it, that's a numerical majority. So obviously there's a close connection between the presidency and the background of, of becoming a lawyer. And that makes the two big points, I think. One is that the legal profession provides legal training for what government does. After all, legislatures make law, executives carry out law, courts adjudicate, and presidents are deeply involved really with all of those activities. And the other thing is that law is often seen as a political, as as the beginning of a political path to elective office. And that is true not just for the presidency, but it's true for Congress, for state legislatures, and other elective bodies. And that's a perfectly appropriate uh, way to proceed, whether your goal is to be a lawyer as a career and then you jump to politics or whether you use it more as a stepping stone, which uh, Bill Clinton did, for example. Well, to follow up, Professor Spitzer, you've you said that more than half of the presidents uh, were lawyers. The ABA has pointed out that the proportion of lawyers has fallen in the 19th century with 76% were lawyers, and now in the 20th century, our most recent, down to 39%. Is there been a backlash against lawyers uh, becoming president? No, I don't think so. I think what it reflects is the, is the fact that there are more paths to the presidency in the 20th century than there were in the 19th century. That is, there are more professions, there are more activities, there are more, as society itself has evolved um, and become more industrialized, more complex, more professionalized, I just think there are more roots to the presidency, if you will, um, in the 20th century compared to the 19th century. I don't think it reflects badly on the law profession, per se. I'd like to add one other thing about legal training, which is this, that lawyers do a few things that people in other professions don't do. For one thing, they learn to see both sides of a case. Uh, Lawyers serve in a variety of capacities, uh, and they understand that there are often both sides of an argument. If you come from an MBA background, if you come from a business background, you are less likely to have been trained to argue both sides. You can be in a moot court case where you don't know until you're called on whether you're on the defense or the prosecution in the moot court case, where, uh, so, so that you have to be prepared to take both sides. I mean, we have seen for the last eight years the business model of managing the presidency, and one of the things that it does is completely close off discussion. When you think of the two greatest presidents, uh, Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt, besides being lawyers, what they had in common is 
they would sit in a cabinet and listen to various arguments by various members of the cabinet on all sides of an issue, and after weighing all the evidence, they might come to a conclusion. The current president doesn't listen to any arguments that aren't the arguments he already wants to hear. That, it seems to me, is more of an MBA model uh, than a lawyer's model. So I, I think the value of lawyers is, is that they're trained to hear both sides, they're trained to understand the nature of arguments, and they're trained to realize that there are always more than one side to a question. There can be many sides to a question. What about the, the public perception of that? I mean, to some extent, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here in the sense of, uh, you know, I think we, we would agree that, that the training that lawyers get is, is valuable for, for life experiences, but how, how does the public perceive uh, the skills of a lawyer and, and its relevance to serving in the presidency? I think it adds to the resume uh, on, in, in the minds of the public. It, it's also no secret that, to some degree, the legal profession is held in, in some low regard uh, you know, by Americans, not, not as low as you car, used car salesmen, let's say. But uh, it's taken more than a share of criticism. And I, in fact, in, in my book to come out, am critical of the legal profession in a certain respect. But I think professional training like uh, that of a physician, let's say, or other uh, occupations or college professor for that matter, I think is held generally in high regard. And while uh, I, I don't recall hearing a presidential candidate or a candidate for Congress say, elect me because I'm a lawyer, I, I think the ideas, the arguments, again, hearkening to Paul's point, the, uh, the skills um, and abilities that lawyers gain, especially when the world of law intersects with the world of politics, and I think that's where uh, the beneficial effects can often you know, arise in governance, um, that, that it, it is helpful to them. I don't think it's a negative in the way other factors might be. Well, in a way, John Edwards was saying, elect me because I'm a lawyer. I mean, his his record that he was standing on was was kind of his record as a you know a defender of the people, a defender of, of the, the working man and the little guy in the courtroom. Right, and, and and that was part of Edwards' his, his argument, because that's what Edwards had done most of his life. Uh, but by the way, I think the, the lowest esteem of lawyers is in part because most people don't go to a lawyer unless they're in trouble. Uh, most people don't go to lawyers for uh, happy events. They go to lawyers for unhappy events, divorces, fighting a traffic ticket, uh, dealing with a criminal case, uh, a contractual dispute that fell apart. You don't really think about your lawyer that closed on your house. You don't say, oh, I hate lawyers, you know, they, they close on houses. You only think about lawyers because you usually relate to a lawyer in circumstances that are not terribly pleasant. Uh, I was once talking to a judge who said that, you know, the only happy moments of being a judge is when she marries people, because then everybody walks out of the courtroom and everybody's happy. Otherwise, you walk out of the courtroom and somebody is unhappy. By the way, I think that's great training for a president, though. Because presidents who are lawyers know that sometimes you lose. You know, lawyers lose. And, and you don't get the kind of mindset of, you know, losing is not an option. You always have to win. You, you, you fight to the bitter end. Lawyers know how to compromise. They know how to uh, pull up stakes when, when it's a losing case. They don't fight to the bitter end um, in many issues because they understand that, that compromise is part of practicing law. When we talk about, or Professor Finkelman mentioned that it's important for a president to sit and listen to economic advisors, but is it important for a president to be a business person in addition?
addition to being someone who can see both sides of the arguments? I mean, is it really possible for a lawyer to understand business in the same way that someone who has an MBA runs, owns a business, understands well, business? Well, the purpose of the business is to make a profit for the business. That's not the purpose of government. Uh, when a president says the business of America is business, that may be the business of most Americans. It's not the business of government, and that may be part of the problem. I think, in fact, if you look at presidents who come from a business background, you don't see particularly successful presidencies. And you could start with the current presidency, and whatever you think of President Bush's specific policies, the poll numbers, all indicators are that this is a disastrous presidency. And I think it's in part a disastrous presidency because it is run like a corporate boardroom model. And what we know about corporate boardroom models is, is there's no dissent in the corporate boardroom because the presidents of the companies help pick the board of uh, the board of directors of the company. That's why you end up with scandals in corporate boardrooms. Um, well, this may be another show, but it's it's not unusual for lawyers to become presidents of corporations, and particularly to move from the you know vice president general counsel position up into the presidency. Uh, you know what? I'd love to see a study of how many companies where the where the head of the company is a former lawyer, former practicing lawyer, still a lawyer, of course, com- and compare their scandal rate to companies where people come out of business. If you remember Enron, then none of those people were lawyers. They were all Harvard MBAs and MBAs from other famous places. I, I believe, by the way, President Bush is a Harvard MBA. Uh, I rest my case. Yeah, there is a certain uh, – I think that that point is a fair one to a degree, although there are many factors that explain presidential behavior, and lawyers obviously are not immune to corruption and interest peddling and other things, especially when the business world and the legal world intersect as they do so often. But as to the presidential not, and, model, and our most corrupt president was Richard Nixon uh, in some ways, and, and he certainly was a lawyer. Yeah, and uh, but to compare uh, George Bush with the other prominent business president that comes to my mind is Herbert Hoover. He was a businessman who uh, gained public recognition for helping Europe rebuild after World War One, and then serving in the cabinets of Harding and Coolidge. And, and, and he did such a spectacular job understanding the economy, right? Uh, well, th- that's the uh, point. The, that's exactly the, guy, the point. He's the business. You know, I'll take Franklin Roosevelt, the lawyer, understanding economics <laughs> over Herbert Hoover any day of the week. Yeah. I Bill Clinton do understanding economics. Um, he only got partway impeached. Uh, and Bill Clinton uh, left us with a multi-billion-dollar budget surplus, a balanced budget, and a spectacular economy. Clinton, yeah, Clinton doffed his hat to to Wall Street. He did so very grudgingly uh, and uh, in a way ruefully, but he yielded to traditional economic interests, and you can certainly argue that that's one reason why the economic times during the Clinton era were good and why he was able to eradicate the annual deficits that uh, had been the norm under the two previous uh, presidents. But, of course, he also was a a president who was a lawyer uh, who uh, used law mostly as a stepping stone to a political career, uh, taught briefly at uh, the University of Arkansas Law School, as I recall, um, but who did run afoul of the law by trying to play games, if you will, to parse too finely um, uh, to try and avoid uh, uh, the legal problems that he wound up being ensnared with in a matter that was really a pretty small bore matter. I mean, it had to do with sexual impropriety, ultimately, and uh, it, was not, it was not a Nixonian type of episode. It's time for us to take a, sh- a short break in the program. Uh, stay with us, and we will hear more from Professors Paul Finkelman and Robert Spitzer after the break.
Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayHavePleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. We are talking with Professor Paul Finkelman, the President, William McKinley Distinguished Professor of Law and Public Policy at Albany Law School, and Professor Bob Spitzer, who is the Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at SUNY Cortland. Well, we, we've been talking before the break about uh, presidents as business people and, and uh, business people as presidents, but we take a little bit of a diversion here for just a moment and look at the current uh, subprime crisis. I mean, lawyers have had something to do with that. They were responsible for drafting some of these collateralized mortgage-backed securities that are an issue, and they were responsible for uh, some of the rating agency decisions that were involved and, and have plunged us into a large crisis and maybe even a larger one to deal with um, another type of investments that, that are, are not as well known yet. But do lawyers really make good businessmen and are they really in the position to be helping uh, the country manage itself? Because while it is government is the business of business to some degree, it's, it does provide a very different service than businesses do. I think those are completely different questions. Uh, I, uh, whether lawyers make good businessmen, uh, every privately practicing attorney is, in, in a sense, in a business. Lawyering is a business as well as a profession. Uh, some of them are very successful at it. Some of them are less successful at it. Uh, but the business of government is not, in fact, business. The business of government is to provide services for people. It's to provide for national defense. It's to oversee the economy at the highest level, and it is, in fact, to regulate things. Uh, One of the problems with the past eight years is we have had a businessman running the country who is not interested in regulation, 
And so we've seen the uh, regulatory agencies eviscerated. They don't have enough people to do the kind of job they need to do. And that's why we have the scandal we have. Uh, it's reminiscent, by the way, of the Savings and Loan Administration uh, scandal uh, under the uh, Reagan and first Bush years. It's the same problem. If you don't have the lawyers doing the regulating, if you don't have people out there investigating, if you let, in other words, the foxes run the hen house, guess what's going to happen to the hen house? Well, there's a, there's a further point to make, I think, which is that in something like the subprime crisis or when there are business policies that run amok, lawyers may well be involved because legal firms and legal uh, talent may be hired to craft policies, etc. And their job, after all, is to serve their client. And that may occur regardless of the rightness of the policy that they've been asked to craft. But that's not the same as making policy. You're, you're mixing government lawyers and private lawyers. If a bank goes to a private, it's, it's law firm and says, here, draft this contract for a subprime mortgage, it's not the job of the lawyer to say, this is bad economics. Exactly that would right. Be the job, that would be the job of the federal government and the banking regulators, who may very well be lawyers. And what I'm arguing is, is that when the president has been a businessman for eight years and has cut back on almost every conceivable way to regulate businesses and to regulate the economy, cut back on the regulators, that allows the business people to go off and do what, in fact, they do best, which is try to make the most money they can make. I don't begrudge businesses trying to make money. That's what they're supposed to be doing. The government's job is to be making sure they do it in an honest and fair and legally proper way. Well, speaking of that, I mean, one of the criticisms of our current president is, is that he, uh, there are some who would say he has not had due respect for the Constitution and, and for the powers of his office. Uh, and Professor Spitzer, the, your, your book, your forthcoming book is entitled Saving the Constitution for, from Lawyers. What, what does that say about uh, lawyers serving as president and, and their respect and, and the application of the Constitution? Well, I think this gets to an extremely important point because one of, what, the, what the Bush administration has done, and especially Dick Cheney and, and some of the people working under him, has been to uh, construct what I consider to be a fictional constitutional past uh, based on a very particular reading of, uh, or more properly misreading of, the founding era intentions, documents, etc., in order to support contemporary policies. And I think some key lawyers, the name that comes to mind, of course, is John Yu, who is back at the University of California Berkeley Law School, and Yu was a key architect of uh, the Bush administration's justification, what's called the, um, the, the, the strong presidency model that uh, it has uh, it has constructed, which calls for a presidency that is beyond the reach of legislation and that is beyond adjudication by the courts when the president deems such actions to be appropriate. And while you might argue that modern necessity might call for an even stronger presidency, this unitary executive theory that has been uh, uh, promulgated by the Bush administration has come from and won the legitimacy of a small number of prominent lawyers who have essentially constructed a fictional constitutional past so that they could argue that uh, their modern uh, application of presidential power 
dates to 1789 when, in fact, it, it simply does not. And I think that has been a perversion of constitutional law, and I think it has been, in a certain respect, an abuse of the legitimacy of legal scholarship. And I think it's done much to damage legal scholarship because some of this writing is one great prominence and legitimacy when it is simply not deserved. Well, so what does the title of your book say about that? Well, yeah. But, yeah, my book argues that legal training and the law review uh, realm uh, has served and does serve the legal profession well, but when uh, uh, legal writers trained in advocacy and the other principles of legal training apply some of those principles to scholarly writing as it appears in law reviews, uh, uh, publications which almost without exception are controlled by students, not by experts, they do not rely on peer review, the result is that you can create and promulgate an entire body of constitutional theory that is utterly at odds with uh, with um, any sort of standard notion of what is and is not true in the constitutional realm, while accepting that there are many arguments that one could make on constitutional subjects, um, when peer review and uh, professional review by experts is not used, and when legal principles of advocacy are applied, where it's more important to win your argument than to present information accurately or correctly, then I think it leads too easily to the distortion of what we think the Constitution means. First of all, your listeners should know that neither Bob nor I are attorneys. Uh, you're not an attorney, are you, Bob? That, that is correct. I am not an yeah, attorney. We, we, are, we are both PhDs, although I have a chair in a law school, and I've been to law school. But one of the problems with law reviews is, uh, other than that they're edited by students usually, is that law review publications tend to value cleverness rather than correctness. So yes. if you come up with a clever or innovative argument, the law review student reads it and says, wow, this is clever. Nobody's ever said this before. We should publish this in our law review. Whereas a peer-reviewed journal would say, this is clever, but let's see if it holds up. Um, and law reviews will site-check a footnote to make sure that the quotation is accurate, whereas a peer-reviewed journal will take the quotation and see if it has been accurately applied. And I think that's a very big difference. Now, I think the very best law reviews tend to do a little bit of both, but many law reviews don't. Well, would, would a lawyer have uh, have used, uh, say, signing statements in the way that President Bush has done? I mean, how, how would a lawyer operate differently than, than what President Bush has done in the, in the constitutional realm? Well, President Bush surely has consulted with lawyers within his administration regarding the use of signing statements. There's nothing illegal about a signing statement per se, even though the Constitution does not anywhere say that the President may issue something called a signing statement. But it's, it's an unexceptional activity by Presidents, or has been through most of history, until more recent times. Bush is not the first, but he is by far the most prolific example of a President who has used signing statements to literally rewrite legislation. And any sane reading of the Constitution tells you that presidents can either sign or veto a bill, but they may not rewrite the terms of the bill once the bill arrives at the president's desk. And that is what President Bush has been doing with signing statements, now issuing nearly a 1,000 of them compared to 600 uh, of all past presidents combined, in which he uses signing statements to say, well, if I decide that I will, if I decide that this provision of this law that I'm signing 
conflicts with my view of my commander-in-chief powers, then I'm simply not going to enforce it. And the idea that a president could do that or attempt to do that, I think, uh, and I have no doubt that, that the logic of that was developed, at least in part, by attorneys who, you know, buy into this idea. But it is indeed, uh, I think, a flagrant abuse of power and, and, and a plain violation of how the Constitution describes the lawmaking process is supposed to operate. You know, you keep asking about how would a lawyer affect this. Obviously, many lawyers have a political agenda, and many lawyers in a political position are willing to advocate their agenda and use all of their legal training and legal skills to advocate their agenda or advocate the agenda for the president that they're working for. Uh, so, of course, you'll get lawyers who will take a different constitutional view that Bob or I or any of our listeners might have. I think the issue here is whether, in general, the kind of training that lawyers get, the kind of training that Obama and Clinton got in Harvard and Yale Law School, would make them better presidents, make them better able to balance uh, issues, make them better able to listen to different kind of arguments, than, say, a man who went to the Naval Academy where uh, you don't get that kind of training. And, and I, I think that's a, that's a clear choice. Uh, and again, I think the businessman model uh, that, that Bush comes out of is very different than this kind of training that, that people get in law school. It doesn't mean that every lawyer would make a good president. We've reached that part in our program where we need to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So if you would, uh, please give our listeners your contact information and uh, give us your final thoughts and perhaps a prediction on which one of the two Democratic candidates will be elected as president. Uh, this is Paul Finkelman. You can reach me at P-F-I-N-K, that's P-Fink, at Albany Law, all one word, A-L-B-A-N-Y-L-A-W dot E-D-U, P-Fink at Albany Law dot E-D-U. And uh, the question was, which of the two Democratic candidates is going to be elected president? That, of course, presumes that uh, Senator McCain will not be elected president. My guess, if I had to put money on it, would be that uh, Senator Obama is going to be the Democratic nominee, and I think he probably will beat Senator McCain in a very tough race. And this is uh, Bob Spitzer at SUNY Cortland. My email address is spitzerb, S-P-I-T-Z-E-R-B as in boy, at Cortland, C-O-R-T-L-A-N-D dot E-D-U. And uh, the, the presidential tea leaves are such that I think Obama clearly does have the inside track. I'd, I'd peg him at 60-40 or 70-30 today, but you cannot count out uh, Hillary Clinton, not yet. Uh, the race in the fall will surely favor the Democrats for a whole host of reasons. Um, Paul McCain, uh, John McCain will prove to be a tough competitor, uh, despite the fact that many within his own party are deeply unhappy with him. But I think at the end of the day, it looks like an Obama nomination and an Obama presidency. Well, that does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Uh, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. Bob? Uh, yeah, thanks very much to, to Paul Finkelman and Bob Spitzer for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, interesting discussion, and uh, really appreciate their participation. And, Craig, I will look forward to speaking with you again next week here on the Legal Talk Network. We'll see you then, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. 
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.